Welcome or welcome back to A Walk on the Wise Side. This is the fourth of a series of five mindfulness improving podcasts, which are each about 20 to 30 minutes long and will together take you on a journey from where you think you are to where you really are. My name is Dr. Stephen McKenzie, and I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne's School of Psychological Sciences. I am one of your guides on this journey, along with other mindfulness and life experts from a range of life wisdom paths. In this podcast, I will talk to a psychologist and well-known mindfulness expert, Dr. Nicholas von Dam, also from the School of Psychological Sciences at the University of Melbourne about mindfulness resources, including clinical mindfulness and mindfulness apps, and about possible mindfulness issues. Welcome, Nicholas. Pleasure to be here. I'd like to ask you about the different ways that mindfulness can help people. Can you tell us something about clinical mindfulness and mindfulness apps and about how they work? So there are a number of different approaches conditions, situations for which things like mindfulness can help people. Uh, I think, first of all, it's important to acknowledge that mindfulness and meditation are not necessarily the same thing. Um, So when we think about mindfulness, sometimes we think about meditation as well. Sometimes we also think about the idea of mindfulness or being present in the moment in a particular way. So when I when I talk about the kinds of things that it can help, it, it's important to think about the fact that we can be talking about both um, this idea of mindfulness or a way of being mindful or the practice of meditation, which is typically considered to be a way of cultivating mindfulness. The literature, uh, the research literature that is, suggests that mindfulness practices can help with a number of conditions. Uh, it can help with managing stress. It can help with um, mental health conditions, so anxiety, depression, things of that sort. There's evidence that it can help with managing pain. There's evidence that it can help people deal with substance abuse issues. And there's a whole host of other things for which it seems to be quite helpful. The research studies that have been done to date are not um, 100% sort of infallible. The evidence sort of is not as definitive as we might like it to be, but, but many of these approaches show considerable promise. Now, when I talk about these approaches or these ideas, it's worth considering as well, if you're thinking about sort of exploring them, um, the different options that are available. Most of the research has been done on a program of meditation training or or mindfulness training called mindfulness-based stress reduction. And there are lots of versions, uh, different variations on this particular program, but it's an eight-week program where you meet with a particular teacher or instructor, someone who has their own practice, who's trained in how to deliver this program or a variation of this program. Um, And usually meet, as I mentioned, for about two to three hours every week for eight weeks. And they encourage you to develop your own practice as well. And they give you resources for that. And that's kind of the most standardized form of mindfulness meditation kind of in a clinical West setting. There's lots of variations on either end of that. So there's the the more sort of traditional Buddhist version um, of contemplative practices. There's other versions of that in other wisdom traditions. Uh, And then there's lots of things like apps and online things and webinars where you can learn sort of more abbreviated or to some extent, sometimes more in-depth versions. Any of these and all of these can potentially be useful, but it's really important to sort of spend some time researching who developed them, what they developed them for, what the primary indication is, and and really what you can find out about the person who developed them and what their purposes are, because there's a lot of variation in terms of people looking to help um, versus make money versus sell products in any combination in between. And, And oftentimes, you know, it's as important to sort of acknowledge the information that's available 
on the website uh, as it is to acknowledge what's not available. So, you know, if you're reading about a particular app and it doesn't say what tradition is it based in or where did the teachings come from or who developed them, then that, that might be an important absence of information that, that you might want to consider. Well, thanks, Nicholas. Do you think that it's possible to learn mindfulness via an app? I know that it's generally considered that you can't learn mindfulness out of a book, but uh, given that, that there are many apps that are available now, do you think that they're actually useful to the extent that people could learn an ongoing valuable mindfulness practice via an app? I wouldn't entirely agree with the statement that you can't learn mindfulness or meditation from a book in the sense that I think there are some excellent books that have really great instructions about how to go about doing the practice. And I myself sort of have done quite a bit in terms of reading books and sort of getting the basics and understanding the philosophy behind the practices. Um, Some of the nice things about the apps, particularly guided meditations that often go along with the apps and often people rely on quite heavily in early practice is that there's someone kind of with you, so to speak, at least virtually, step by step as you go through the practice. And I think early on, that's quite helpful. The biggest limitation of these things, in my opinion, is that you don't have someone to help you troubleshoot. Um, And so lots of experiences come up while you're practicing. Some of them are quite predictable from the perspective of someone who does research on this and who practices this. But some of them can be quite unpredictable um, in terms of those, you know, of what comes up and what happens. And and that's from someone, you know, like yourself, who sort of knows a lot about these practices. So I, I think the biggest issue really is that for people doing these things with guidance from an app, they may not know what to expect in terms of what will come up and they may not know how to deal with it. And the instructions in the app, likewise, the instructions in a book are not necessarily always going to help the individual to deal with the kinds of things that come up. Now, in certain guided practices, good or experienced teachers often will try to anticipate some of those things. And so you'll hear people say things like, your mind may now be wandering off and that's okay. Just gently bring it back to the breath or something along those lines. And they often get the timing pretty good um, in terms of knowing when to, to make that suggestion or offering. So I think, you know, for, for the average person, you know, apps can often be a nice introduction to practice. It can be really helpful to have someone to speak to, to talk to about you know, when those kind of unusual, un- undesirable, unwanted or unexpected experiences come up and to kind of figure out, well, is that is that a, a usual thing? Is that a normal thing? What do I do with that? How do I work with that? Uh, and, and it's really hard to get that kind of experience when you're learning via an app. Maybe an app is a, a good way to start, but then in time, it's useful to expand on that practice. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a nice way for people to sort of, uh, an app can be a nice way for people to pick up and, and try it out. And particularly sort of, you know, there's so many different traditions, practice traditions. Um, I think an app or even watching a YouTube video or watching guided practices that as they're listed on various websites. So, you know, Tricycle Magazine lists different resources of people to jump in or join in on Zoom sessions. There's a number of places as well that lists guided practices that you can try out. Apps sort of have, you know, like Insight Timer offer guided practices from all different types of traditions. And so it can give you a bit of a flavor or a feel for what might the practice be like. And so for many people, that can be a really nice starting place, you know, rather than sort of having to show up at a a meditation center or someone's office without really knowing what you're getting, you kind of get a bit of a teaser. And I think then if you really do like that form, then you can kind of hone in and try to figure out if you really want to work with someone one-on-one. It is important, though, I think, if you're going to do that, that even before you kind of engage the the product or the offering, that you you do your homework and you kind of find out, is it legit? Is it it backed by by any kind of evidence? But yeah, to your point, I think um, an app can be a nice place for people to start. That sounds good. You've told us about mindfulness benefits, including helping people with stress and helping them focus. Do you think that that's all there is to mindfulness? 
Or do you think that mindfulness can help people discover what they really need to know as well as what they think they need to know? I think it depends on the version that you're talking about. The mindfulness programs that are on offer are, as I mentioned, you know, many of them are, they're very diverse offerings, right? So there's mindfulness and there's meditation. And there are programs that are designed solely to help you enhance your attention or the way you manage your mind or your focus or to help you perform better at work or, or wherever you are. Uh, and then there's versions of this that actually help you to explore yourself, um, explore your goals, explore what it is that you want out of your life and, and what meaning is and what life is to you. And so I think those types of practices really offer quite a lot more. Um, there's a lot more depth there. There's a lot more breadth as well. And they can really help people to go beyond just sort of honing their attention or their focus if, if they want to, and to really help people kind of answer some of the big questions of life. So why am I here? What is this all about? What do I want out of life? And as you sit with some of these practices, as you explore your thoughts, as you explore your sensations in your body, some of those ideas or some of those questions start to come up for you. you know, what is this all about? What, what do I make of this? Where am I going? Why am I sitting here in this room doing this practice? So you can get more than what you're expecting with the practice of mindfulness, which really can make it a journey. Absolutely. I mean, you know, look, it's, it's interesting because some people approach mindfulness and meditation with the idea of just training their attention and get more than maybe they bargained for in the sense that they start to ask these questions about who am I and maybe they don't want that. And for some people, it's a very welcome surprise and that they start to explore these ideas or these questions and, you know, it, it takes them to a very interesting place. But I think at the other end, you get people who sort of can approach this with the idea that they're going to get some incredible transformational experience that they're going to experience nirvana and that they're going to be enlightened immediately or they're going to figure out the grand unifying meaning of everything and maybe they don't and that can, can lead to some disappointment so um, it's important as you approach these kinds of practices to know why you're going into them and to know whether the practice the the program whatever it is that you're kind of signing up for whether it can kind of do for you what you hope it might that's a good point so mindfulness is often presented as a technique and as a self-help technique. Do you think that there's more to mindfulness than this? Yeah, I think this notion of it being self-help is somewhat problematic. And I think it's, it's a reflection of the fact that mindfulness and meditation have in many ways been driven recently and kind of co-opted to some extent by the wellness industry. And so, you know, th there's a lot of companies that are making a lot of money off of offering things that have been, they label mindfulness. Um, there's all kinds of things you can buy online that are mindful coloring books, mindful candles, mindful skincare products. And there's sort of the suggestion of just adding this label to it somehow makes it virtuous, ethical, wholesome, I don't know. But that's part of this sort of idea that, well, you know, it's you helping yourself. And the idea of self-help, I think, still holds true. It, it is often you working through, and certainly in meditation, you working through your own experiences. But in the traditional forms of it, it's also somebody else helping you with that. So I think it's more than self-help. Um, I also think it's more than just a technique. To my mind, it's not just a tool that you use to manage yourself, so to speak, or to, to kind of help you deal with a bad job or a bad relationship to kind of help you find a way to just be okay with that. It's actually a way for you to explore yourself, your situation, the context in which you find yourself more deeply and to figure out whether or not how you're living your life and where you think you are um, and what you think you hope to get out of life matches with where you maybe actually are. And so, so there's a lot more on offer than, than this idea of just kind of self-help or just using a particular tool to manage your stress. That's an important point. 
So what is mindfulness connected with? To quote from Socrates, where is it from and where is it going? There's a couple of ways of thinking about the term mindfulness. The traditional term mindfulness in, in the Buddhist context, which is where a lot of people link it to Buddhism, it, it comes from this, this term sati. I mean, it's quite complicated. The definition sort of is not agreed upon um, by Buddhist scholars. It certainly wasn't agreed upon as far as my reading suggests, you know, in the early days of, of Buddhism. But there is a link to Buddhism and Buddhist practice. There's also a much more practical and pragmatic variation of mindfulness. And in the first kind of introduction of mindfulness in the kind of Western scientific world, the way that kind of mindfulness was introduced was along the lines of minding your head or minding the gap, as in remembering not to bump your head. And uh, it's interesting because there's certain scholars that suggest that the traditional definitions and that kind of commonplace usage of, of minding one's head or minding the gap or minding yourself are actually not that different, um, that it's a remembering to do something in a certain way. And in the Buddhist context, the, the way in which you remember to do something, it, there's, a, there's a lot of other baggage in the sense that, well, it's maybe not baggage, uh, but for some people it could be considered that way. But there's there's other things that you're meant to cultivate. There, there's an ethical context. There's a practice context. There's a community context. There's, for some people, an engaged context. So you're a person in a body, in a world, in a society. You're interacting with other people and you need to make the most of that and you need to make the best of it. And some people practice in the Buddhist context with this idea of not just feeling better themselves, but actually making the world a better place. So that, that's a lot about where it comes from. In terms of where it's going, I don't know. I mean, my hope would be that it's going somewhere useful. I think there's a lot of movement in the mindfulness space to make it very much a self-help technique and very much to make it a minute fix or a quick practice, uh, ways to sort of help people just quickly resolve stress or quickly resolve irritation. But I really hope that it's more than that because it can offer a lot more than that. And I think the more than that that it can offer has to do with the ideas that it can help people figure out answers and figure out kind of what they want from life. And I think given that in our current society, contemporary society, there's considerable amounts of uncertainty and the traditional role that maybe religion played in sort of terms of helping us figure out what do we want? How do we deal with uncertainty? How do we deal with the challenges of life? Given that religion is not playing as prominent a role for a lot of people as it used to, I think many people are looking for ways of, of, of making sense of things, of figuring out what to do with themselves and their world. And I, I think these practices can potentially really help with that. Uh, they can really help people figure out what life is all about and where they want to go and, and, and at the same time where they actually are. Well, thanks, Nicholas. Is there anything else that you'd like to say or not say about mindfulness? Uh, I, th I think the only thing that I would probably add is uh, there's a, a saying that I quite like by John Kabat-Zinn, that it's simple but not easy. Uh, and, and that I think it's a useful saying in, in this context because it's, it's a practice that's extraordinarily simple in terms of what you do, but it's not easy at all. In fact, it's, it's one of the most difficult things you can do to sit in a room by yourself with your thoughts um, and your experiences. And so while the idea of what you're doing is quite straightforward, the actual practice of it can be incredibly complicated, but it, it can, for many people, it can be incredibly worthwhile and very rewarding. Well, thanks, Nicholas. So Nicholas now will take us through a, a short mindfulness practice. So I'll give a little bit of guidance and just sort of in the kind of mindfulness-based stress reduction and sort of somewhat influenced a bit by the variations on meditation practice from Thich Nhat Hanh, and that's in, in a, uh, a Zen tradition. So to begin mindfulness meditation, 
find a place where you're comfortable, either sitting in a chair, lying on the floor, you can sit on the bed or lie on a bed or a mat or if you like a cushion. Allow your feet to, if you're on a chair, come in full flat contact with the floor. Um, if you're on a cushion or bed, um, just, just allow your, your feet to sort of fall comfortably. It's important to sit in a way that embodies dignity. So allowing the spine to rise up straight um, out of the pelvis. So you're not forcing the back straight. You're not forcing yourself to be a rod or feel as if you have your, your spine is rigid, but you're allowing the, the spine to sort of rise up and, and maybe imagine, if you will, that there's a piece of string attached to the top of the head and there's attached to the ceiling above you. And that string should be taut. So it's not, it's not tight, but it's, um, it's, it's not lax either. And as you begin, just gently, if you like, closing your eyes. If, if not, just allowing them to focus on a spot um, in front of you, slightly downward. Just coming to take a few deep breaths. Allowing the breath to flow in through the nostrils into the sinuses and to the back of the throat down into the chest. And as the chest welcomes the air, the abdomen expands and allowing the breath to reverse and the abdomen to fall towards the spine and the air to rise up through the lungs and back into the throat and the sinuses and again out through the nostrils of the mouth. And as you take these breaths, just being here fully in this moment, wherever you are, whatever you're experiencing, just allowing yourself to be here, not trying to make yourself be any way or forcing yourself to feel any certain way or think any certain thing, just being here in the moment wherever it is that you find yourself. Saying to yourself, perhaps, breathing in, I am breathing in. Breathing out, I am breathing out. And allowing the breath to breathe itself, not trying to force it or change it. Seeing if you can watch it and notice the qualities of it as it comes into and goes out of the body. And as you sit here, you may become aware of particular tensions in the body. As you sit watching the breath, you may become aware of tension in the shoulders or the neck. Perhaps you notice that you're clenching your jaw or perhaps some tension in your forehead or around the eyes. If you, if you notice these things, just try to breathe into them. Try to allow the breath to reach into that tension and allow the tension to soften. Not trying to force the experience away, not trying to make it other than it is, 
but just seeing if you can be here in the moment with that experience and allowing the breath to reach that experience. And as you continue to breathe, just noting all the sensations of the breath as they flow in, perhaps trying to catch the point at which the in-breath switches to the out-breath, seeing if you can notice any clear point at which the in-breath becomes the out-breath. Seeing what it feels like at that point, what it feels like to be in fully in your body in this moment, in this breath. And as you sit here in your, your body, in the room, your mind may wander off as you're trying to do this practice. You may start to think of things from the past or things you have to do in the future, later in the day. And if your mind does this, that, that's okay. That's what minds do. They wander. Try not to get angry with yourself or frustrated with yourself. Just acknowledge that the mind is wandering or has wandered. And gently, carefully, as you might a child who's wandered off course, bring the attention back to the breath. continuing to follow the breath in and out. And as you come to the end of the practice, allowing your awareness to expand from the breath to the room as a whole, to yourself in the room as a whole, to your experience more widely, you can begin to slowly open your eyes and become aware of your surroundings, rolling the shoulders, shaking the feet or the hands if you need to. And as you end the practice, thanking yourself for taking the time to renew your energy, to renew yourself, to be with yourself, to be in the moment, to just be and not do thank yourself for this act of kindness, this act of self-love. Thanks, Nicholas. And we encourage you to practice this and the other mindfulness practices regularly. This concludes the podcast. In the next podcast in the Walk on the Wise Side series, Nicholas and I will talk to experts from a range of life wisdom traditions. Farewell. A Walk on the Wise Side is a University of Melbourne podcast. Dr. Stephen McKenzie is our host. Production by Sylvie Van Wall, with audio engineering and editing by Arch Cuthbertson. Music from Lee Rosevere. Our guest speaker was Dr. Nicholas Van Dam. You can find more great audio series wherever you get your podcasts or by going to unimelb.edu.au.